Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Would Donald Trump rather see the border crisis fixed or would he rather campaign on it? Why don't you take a guess? The lead starts right now. A bipartisan Senate border deal is at risk of death, with Donald Trump urging Senate Republicans to kill it so he can use the border as a central campaign issue against Joe Biden. All the latest from Capitol Hill coming up. Plus, CNN on the ground in the streets of Ecuador, where gang violence plagues the country, where just this month gunmen took over a TV station. See what our crews captured as police try to crack down. And... Damaging audio leak, what Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu allegedly said on a hot mic that could ruin negotiations to free hostages held by Hamas. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we begin with our 2024 lead, the immigration deal that we've reported on for you during this show for months, which Republicans insist on being part of a package of aid to Ukraine and Israel. Well, that whole deal might go up in smoke. Why? Well, at least partly because Senator Mitch McConnell, one of those powerful Republicans other than former President Donald Trump, may end up deferring to the desires of Donald Trump to keep the border issue alive as a campaign issue. And a reminder that Trump is not even officially the Republican presidential nominee. Nikki Haley is still in the race. But still, the former president is now publicly bashing this potential Senate deal on immigration that both parties have worked across the aisle to try to secure. According to a Republican source, Senator McConnell yesterday admitted to his fellow Republicans that the party is in a, quote, quandary because Trump wants to campaign in 2024 on the border crisis. And if there's a deal that would help resolve the border chaos, Trump can't exactly run on that. So is it possible that Senate Republicans and Mitch McConnell, who doesn't even have a great relationship with Trump, will back out of this deal. It would be a big about face for McConnell, who just this week said that Congress needs to pass the border security bill and unlock billions of dollars in aid to Ukraine. I've never been under any delusion about why America was backing Ukraine's fight. This has never been about charity, not about charity. It's not about virtue signaling or abstract principles of international relations. This is about cold, hard American interests. Those cold, hard American interests apparently growing a little bit lukewarm and squishy. So will this plan for border security ever make it across the finish line? A little history. Last time comprehensive immigration reform passed in this country, I was 17 years old. Gas cost $1.23 a gallon. And here is the man who was our president at the time at the bill signing in 1986. It's an excellent example of a truly successful bipartisan effort. The administration and the allies of immigration reform on both sides of the Capitol and both sides of the aisle 
work together to accomplish these critically important reforms to control illegal immigration. But further reform has been needed since then, and in the nearly four decades since that signing, we've had Republican presidents and Democratic presidents, and comprehensive immigration reform has still never made it to their desks, even though at times it seemed possible under both Bush and Obama. Here's Republican Senator Marco Rubio of Florida back in 2013. He was one of the gang of eight in the U.S. Senate who worked hard on a comprehensive deal. In essence, we're not awarding anybody anything. All we're doing is giving people the opportunity to eventually earn access to our new, improved, and modernized legal immigration system. Despite all that bipartisan work in the U.S. Senate, the bill still did not become law, almost entirely because House Republicans constantly refused to get on board with the compromise legislation or even allow a vote on it. And the border has remained a crisis, and obviously it's gotten worse. The compromise legislation right now is by many accounts more conservative than previous compromises, prompting many Senate Republicans to urge their colleagues in the Senate and the House to take the win and pass a bill that will at least try to help alleviate the problem. But others, frankly, seem more invested in the chaos. Here's Republican Senator Mitt Romney earlier today breaking it all down. I think the border is a very important issue for Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact that he would communicate to uh, Republican senators and Congress people that he doesn't want us to solve the border problem because he wants to blame uh, Biden for it is, uh, is really appalling. The border is in crisis, as we've, as we've been saying on this show for months. And Republicans have a case to make, an argument to make to voters that President Biden's leadership on the issue has been lacking. But... This fall, when you hear politicians describing accurately the risks to the life and safety of migrants as they make the dangerous journey to the porous border, or the dangerous criminals who have been able to cross the border and victimize people in the United States, more often than not Latinos, or the resources being exhausted in localities that cannot handle the influx, including in New York and Chicago, you might want to also remember those who see this big problem and are deciding right now, let's keep the wound exposed and untreated because it will make a more devastating attack ad in October and November. We're going to start today with CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. And Manu, we just heard what Senator Romney told you. Trump's behavior is, quote, appalling. So where do border talks stand and what are other lawmakers telling you? Well, senators who are trying to negotiate this deal tell me that they still are pushing ahead and hope to get something out as soon as next week. But the prospects are incredibly grim and no small part because, as you mentioned, former President Donald Trump trying to sink this effort. And there already have been a number of conservatives who believe that whatever deal is cut won't be to their liking, will be too weak and that they simply won't be able to support it. And there are other on the fence Republicans who don't want to cross Donald Trump, who's on his way to winning the Republican nomination and want to punt on this issue. And then there are Republicans who want this deal now, believe that Democrats have conceded on a number of key issues and say that if they don't act, that means aid to Ukraine, aid to Israel will fall by the wayside, jeopardizing international and domestic security and say that now is time for action. That is the, the view from a number of Republicans, including Trump allies, who say that they should not use this for campaign purposes and it's time for Congress to pass legislation. I just reject the idea that we should reserve 
a, a crisis for a better time to solve it. You know, that's people. You know, what's interesting to me is there are a lot of angry people out there, and that's why the border crisis is the number one issue for for voters. I don't see how we have a better story to tell when we miss the one opportunity we have to fix it, and we go and say. You know, I would love to have fixed it, but it was election season, so I thought I'd wait. Anything that interrupts that negotiation, uh, I think, would be tragic. I don't doubt that he wants a perfect deal. So do I on it. But we've got to be able to figure out how to be able to do something right now to get as much done as we can possibly get done. I hope we don't live in a world today in which one person inside the Republican Party holds so much power that they could stop a bipartisan bill. Now, behind closed doors today, Senator McConnell tried to clear up confusion about where he stands on this issue. He reaffirmed his support for those trio of senators, including Republican Senator James Langford, for trying to get a deal on this issue. He said that he would be behind that. Now, can they get a deal? They still are hopeful that they can get it out by next week. But, Jake, still getting the votes in the Senate, getting it through the Republican-led House, all huge questions, in large part because of Donald Trump. All right, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much with us now. Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar, his district stretches from San Antonio to the U.S.-Mexico border. So, Congressman, you just heard CNN's Manu Raju report that the border deal uh, might be falling apart, might be dead uh, because uh, Donald Trump does not want a, a victory and, and, does not w- and he wants to be able to run against Biden on this in November. Uh, what's your take and who do you blame? You know, certainly, I think what Mitt Romney said and what Mano said uh, from talking to the senators, it's, it is sad that uh, one person can stop the U.S. Senate, the U.S. Senate and the U.S. House from moving ahead on bipartisan uh, uh, legislation to address this. Keep in mind that the Republicans have been saying there's a crisis, there's a crisis, there's a crisis. Let's act now. And guess what? Now they're saying, well, let's wait for uh, President Trump to get reelected and then we can address it uh, next uh, January. It's something that we need to address right now. And some people are going to uh, regret that, you know, this moment, because we are have, have really gotten Democrats from some of their comfort zones into places that I thought I could not see some of my fellow Democrats at. And I've seen some Republicans move over, which means that Chris Murphy, Cinema, uh, you know, James Lankford have been doing and others have been doing a good job to get people off their comfort zones to do something. And I think, you know, you know, we're going to regret that we're not able to do something at this moment because then it's going to get uh, very difficult to get done as we get uh, closer to the election. So just uh, in case viewers don't know, uh, you have been also calling this a crisis. You're a Democrat. You've been critical of the Democratic Party for not taking this issue more seriously. You've, you've been saying this for years, literally. Um, and this is a bill as you noted, uh, that is more conservative than previous compromises. Um, I guess one of the questions I have for you is, even if this were to pass the Senate, it's still an open question if Speaker Johnson would even allow it to come up for a vote because it might pass, but not with a majority of Republicans uh, supporting it. What's what's the latest on that? Would Speaker Johnson even let this come up for a vote uh, if it were to pass the Senate? If I go on some of the tweets that he's put out, I think about a week ago, where he said the border deal, Senate border deal is dead, we're going to wait for President Trump, I think it would be very hard for him to put it on the on the floor. Uh, and it's unfortunate because I think both sides are going to get probably 
something that they probably won't be able to get at a later time. Uh, and it's unfortunate, you know, when we talk about the Hastro rule, which is, you know, the majority of the Republican majority, or should we let the will of the House and let Democrats and Republicans vote on it as Americans, not as Democrats, Republicans, uh, you know, I think we can get something passed. But the question will be, will they put something on the floor? And while we're waiting for this Senate bill, I said as a ranking member for Homeland Appropriations, we don't have the numbers, the allocations. And, and part of it is because we don't know where you're going to put $14 billion in a supplemental. How does that affect the uh, allocation for Homeland Appropriations? So there's a lot of things that are affecting the appropriations because we don't have the allocations. And guess what? March 1st, March 8th are just around the corner before we know it. Yeah, and your, your argument that the momentum is, is here and these our opportunities are rare um, when something can pass, something as controversial as immigration reform. Uh, I want to play for you what independent Senator Kirsten Sinema, one of the three senators that's been negotiating on this, said about all of this just a few minutes ago. I think because we're at a unique period of time uh, where we've never had a border package this substantial, this serious, in front of the United States Congress, frankly, in my lifetime. Um, and this is the time in which it can pass. This is the time in which it should pass. Um, and it is attached, as we know, to a priority for people on both parties, which is obviously fighting Putin's aggression and standing with our ally, Israel. I guess the question I have for you is, if Donald Trump were to win in November... Um, do you think it would be as easy or easier or harder to arrive at this negotiation? I think it would be much harder. I think uh, the senator's right. She is right. Uh, we're at a moment right now that we've gotten people off their comfort zones. And, and like you played Ronald Reagan, the last time we had bipartisan uh, immigration was in 1986. Uh, you know, we almost passed it under Obama. We almost passed it under George Bush. We almost got it done during those times, but it just didn't happen. This is another moment that I see in my experience that we're there. Uh, and if we lose this window, uh, it's going to get much harder because, you know, you know, President Trump is going to want something that a lot of Democrats are not going to want. So we've gotten people off their comfort zones, both Democrats and Republicans. We ought to take advantage of this. But I, the way I've been Hearing and talking to some folks, it doesn't look good. And it's unfortunate that one person can dictate to the U.S. Senate, the most powerful uh, after the U.S. House, uh, you know, one of the most powerful institutions in the world and the House of Representatives and get them to not do this border deal and leave it as an attack ad against Biden, against Democrats. And it's yeah. very unfortunate that we'll lose this opportunity. Yeah. And lest we uh, forget, Donald Trump was president for four years and there was no such success in a compromise legislation for border security at all. Did not happen. Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar of Texas, thank you as always. Good to have you on the show. This back and forth over policy goes well beyond the border. In Ecuador, Crime and drug cartels run rampant. CNN's David Culver went there. He spent some time with the police in Ecuador. See what so many people there are trying to flee. That's next. Topping our world lead today, once known as the island of peace between the world's largest cocaine producers, Peru and Colombia, Ecuador has since descended into chaos. In just the past month, Armed men took over a TV station and held its anchors hostage live on air. One of the country's most notorious gang leaders apparently escaped prison. 
And Ecuador's brand new president declared an official internal armed conflict as his army began to target some 30,000 suspected gang members in house-to-house raids. 30,000. The U.S. may be in some ways partially responsible. I mean, how do these gangsters have this money? Well, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Agency says multi-ton shipments of cocaine transit through Ecuador, destined for the U.S. And Americans, we are among the world's leading consumers of cocaine. And we spend billions of dollars on cocaine every year. CNN's David Culver rides along with Ecuador's police force and military. And a warning to our viewers, some of the images in this report are disturbing. We're the fourth in a convoy of what looks to be about four pickup trucks, all of them unmarked, no lights, no sirens, all the officers in plain clothes. We're with Ecuador's National Police Force as they're dispatched to a house with suspected ties to terror groups. They won't tell us where exactly we're headed, and they ask us to blur their faces. Shows you the level of concern and fear that exists here right now. So we'll keep it vague. We're just outside Guayaquil, Ecuador's largest city, and headed into one of the most violent areas, Duran. More than a dozen officers storm what could be mistaken for an abandoned barn, but their intel suggests otherwise. They cuff two men and search the high grass and weeds. On each corner, security cameras strategically positioned. Officers hack them down. As they leave here, we've noticed even he's carrying some evidence. Looks like a gun and several rounds in that baggie. This is just one of thousands of raids across Ecuador carried out over the past two weeks. Ecuador's military now deployed to neighborhoods. We went with them. Over here, we see two guys who have been detained for now. Officials arresting more than 3,000 people so far. Ecuador's latest surge in violence sparked by the suspected prison escape of notorious gang leader Jose Adolfo Macias, known as Fito reported missing from this massive prison compound on January 7th. If you look over here, this is where officials tell us Fito was being held, possibly is still being held. They really don't know. A top military commander telling me the prison system is rife with mismanagement and heavy gang influence. So much so that Fito could still be hiding inside. Fito's disappearance led President Daniel Noboa to declare a state of emergency, vowing to neutralize terror groups. A day after Noboa's declaration, on January 9th, 13 armed men took over a television news studio in Guayaquil. They put guns to the heads of employees, forcing them to the ground, and held up what looked to be sticks of dynamite. Folks watched it all unfold on live TV, among them Camille Gamarra and her husband Diego Gallardo. Feeling the unease, Diego decided to pick up their 10-year-old son. But minutes before reaching his school, someone opened fire on the streets. Diego stopped messaging Camille, who was frantically trying to call him. A police colonel eventually answered and told Camille Diego had been shot. Chaos rocked Ecuador that day, especially in Guayaquil, where barricades went up and streets shut down. This young girl, still in her school uniform, also hit by a stray bullet. The hospital later saying she survived thanks to a security guard who drove her to the emergency room. A family friend was able to get Camille's son to safety. 
but Diego died before Camille could get to him. De no poder hacer nada. De quedarme sentada sin poder hacer nada. Across town, national police and armed forces stormed the television studio, capturing the gunmen before they could kill any of the hostages. And this is the studio where the terror group entered, and 13 of them. We saw firsthand the damage left behind. So this is the studio door, and you can see, I can count here, one, two, three, four, five, six, about a half dozen bullet holes. The day after our visit and a brazen strike against the government, suspected gang members assassinated the prosecutor investigating that studio takeover. You can see he's pulling this car over right now. Police and military now stepping up their efforts, setting up random checkpoints. Every possible hiding place searched. I just saw one of the soldiers signaling to the other, look at his arm, look at his arm. They check tattoos for any gang affiliations and even scroll through people's phones. They also board commuter buses to get intel. He's asking, do they have anything they need to tell him or inform about? He says, we're doing this operation for you all. Residents here struggle with what's happened to their country over the past few years. They tell me gangs are growing bolder and holding people and their businesses hostage, demanding protection money, known as vacunas. What happens if you don't pay the vacuna, if you don't pay the extortion? They get a contract killer and, and kill you. They put an explosive outside your, your store. The military tries to weed out those responsible, raiding homes like this one, holding the suspects at gunpoint as neighbors, including kids, watch. It's a lot to take in. She says the fact that there are police here, it's comforting. She accepts that and that there's military now patrolling the streets. What she doesn't like is that it goes into people's homes and it's now pouring out onto the street. But this is war. At least that's how the government here sees it. And they're asking the U.S. for support, desperate for tactical equipment, ammo, and intel. Why should the U.S. help? Because people will look at this from the U.S. and they'll say, well, that's Ecuador's problem. I mean, if, if you don't help us, probably you will see more people trying to cross the border because these people is in the middle of gunfights on their neighborhoods. What would you do? Hey, you're not going to stay there. You don't want to stay there. Back on the front lines after executing their raid, we're reminded of the fear instilled by these gangs, even among law enforcement. This officer putting on a ski mask in 90-degree heat and thick humidity before stepping into frame. And yet, beneath those tactical layers, a soft spot. This soldier's not been home in a week, telling us the reason he's fighting is for his little girl. She wrote him a letter in English. I want you to know that everyone misses you here at home, and we want you to return safe and sound. And I ask you to help the country to be a better place. You are number one. There was a moment, Jake, uh, in the midst of one of those raids where we asked one of the soldiers, well, aren't you scared? You're not going in with any helmet and really not that much protective gear. And he said, I wish I had it. We, we just have been running out. They're low on a lot of the gear needed to go into these situations. And they say that they're limited to 
about a dozen bullets a day. So they're saying that they don't have enough to sustain this, which is why we're hearing now just from the White House, just from our Priscilla Alvarez, she passed this along to me just in the past few minutes, that the White House is now urgently increasing aid to Ecuador. They see this as a state that's quickly deteriorating and one that they need to step in on. And Jake, as you and I have talked about, this is something that is all connected with everything else, with immigration, with drug flow. If you don't stop it at the source, the concern is it's going to come right into the U.S. Absolutely. David Culver, thank you so much for that report. CNN is also on the ground in Israel today. Coming up, the problematic comment apparently made by Prime Minister Netanyahu in a leaked recording and fears today that it could undermine efforts to free the more than 100 hostages still being held by the terrorists of Hamas. Stay with us. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Back with our world lead now. Tell us how you really feel. A leaked audio recording, almost certainly of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, aired on Israel's Channel 12 this week, where the, the person speaking bashes the country of Qatar for its role as mediator in the Israel-Hamas war and said he's very angry with the Americans for renewing a lease on a military base in Qatar without extracting a concession on hostages first. CNN's Nick Robertson reports now from Tel Aviv as anger grows with the longest serving Israeli prime minister in history. During a testy meeting with hostage families Monday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appears to have strained his one regional relationship with Qatar that matters most to those very families. You don't hear me thanking Qatar, because Qatar is essentially no different from the UN or the Red Cross, and in some ways even more problematic. They have leverage because they're financing them. These comments, caught off mic, triggered a rapid and barbed diplomatic put-down from Qatari officials who helped negotiate the release of almost 100 Israeli hostages in November, saying in a tweet, We are appalled by the alleged remarks attributed to the Israeli Prime Minister, if validated, are irresponsible and destructive to the efforts to save innocent lives, but are not surprising. Just days earlier, Qatar had been talking up relations with Israel and the potential for Hamas to release more hostages. We are engaging in serious discussions with both sides. We have presented ideas to both sides. We are getting uh, a constant stream of uh, replies from both sides. Qatar's frustration now seems personal with Netanyahu. 
Qatar concluding their criticism with a view increasingly suspected by some Israelis. Netanyahu wants to keep the war going, saying in a tweet, the Israeli prime minister would only be obstructing and undermining the mediation process for reasons that appear to serve his political career. Hostage families who were in the meeting with the prime minister released a terse statement appearing to blame Netanyahu for the leak, although he denies it. The fact that the censorship was given permission to publish this audio recording is serious and indicates a loss of judgment. This leaked audio also suggests he may be trying to draw the White House into confrontation. I was very angry recently, and I didn't hide it from the Americans, that they renewed the contract on the military base they have with Qatar. President Biden hasn't openly spoken to the tensions, but this week, Secretary of State Antony Blinken criticizing Israel for taking Gazan territory to create a security buffer. We've been very clear about um, maintaining, in effect, the, the territorial integrity. And to that point, uh, has Qatar actually decided to possibly pull out of the mediation talks? Um, there's absolutely no indication that they're going to do that. Indeed, CIA chief Bill Burns is on his way to meetings with his Israeli counterpart, Egyptian officials, and yes, Qatari officials as well. And that is all about trying to get those remaining hostages released, Jake. Nick Robertson in Tel Aviv for us. Thank you so much. Staying in our world lead, the conditions in Gaza grow more dire each day as Israel's military confirms it is expanding operations against Hamas in the city of Khan Yunus. The UN said today more than half of the more than 2 million residents of Gaza are now crammed into the Rafah area of the country. Hunger is now creating chaotic scenes as those desperate for food rush to whatever aid arrives. And as Ben Wiedemann reports, one of those aid sites was just hit, according to Hamas. A warning, this story contains some graphic images. Once again, the wounded are sprawled on the floor of a Shifa hospital in Gaza City. Victims of what a civil defense official says was Israeli tank and machine gun fire on a crowd of people waiting to receive desperately needed humanitarian aid. People were going to get food and flour because they have nothing to eat, he says. Then suddenly tanks appeared and started firing shells at people. Mohammed Arifi was injured in the hand and leg. They shelled us four times, he says. Wednesday, at the same spot, the Kuwait Circle in Gaza City's southern outskirts, there were scenes of panic when, according to eyewitnesses, Israeli forces opened fire during the distribution of aid. CNN has reached out to the Israeli military for comment, but has not yet received a response. To the south, thousands are streaming out of Khan Yunis, where intense fighting has been raging for days, leaving however they can, traumatized by what they've seen and what they've lost. This is the third time we've moved, she says. All they have left in the world piled onto a shopping cart. This is as far as you can get safely from Khan Yunis. Between a sea of tents and the sea, some supplies are available.
Close to 90% of the people of Gaza are now displaced, many now living like this. Winter rains have turned parts of this makeshift camp into a muddy pond. I'm looking for our things, he says. What they have found is anger at the men who pose as their leaders. Look, Ismail Haniya, let him see us, shouts this man, referring to Hamas's political leader living in Qatar. The war is raged now for more than 110 days. For three and a half months we've been on the run, says Iyad Abu Musaid. Let us go back to our homes. We're sick of this life. Death would be better. According to the forecast, another winter storm is coming. Ben Wiedemann, CNN, reporting from Beirut. Thanks to Ben Wiedemann for that report. In our money lead, moments ago on Wall Street, another record day for both the Dow and the S&P 500. You see the Dow there finishing up 243 points. The headline today helping to drive this record that even surprised some top economists. That story next. Good news in our money lead. New numbers show the U.S. economy grew at a powerful pace in the fourth quarter as consumers and businesses continued to spend, crushing expectations of a recession. CNN's Richard Quest is here to break down the numbers. And Richard, these numbers surprised even economists. Just how much did the economy grow? 3.3% on an annualized basis, which whilst less than the previous quarter was a, was a gangbusters, all things considered. And it's given rise to people saying basically the soft landing that everybody talked about is actually here. We don't really need to talk too much about whether it will or won't or whatever, because you've got strong growth, low unemployment, and falling inflation. Now, this is the scenario, exactly the scenario, Jake, that the Fed had been hoping to engineer. And it seems to be happening uh, at the moment. And there's no obvious reason to suggest why it would go wrong, other than some exogenous event, for example, the Middle East oil prices and the like, which you can't necessarily factor in. But this is impressive for an economy that's faced such high interest rates. Uh, Richard, polls across the U.S. continue to show that the American people have a pessimistic outlook on the economy. An exit poll from New Hampshire this weekend showed only 25 percent the economy is good, 75 percent uh, see uh, the economy as not good or poor. Now, that's a sampling of Republican voters in one state, but it is true that Americans do not see the economy as rosily as many economists do. Why not? Is it because of inflation? I've got a new word for you vibe session. It's the, basically the idea that people's feelings of what's happening in the economy are not matched by the reality of the data. And the vibe session's been going for some time now, and people will basically tell you, we don't feel well off, we don't feel this, we don't feel that, we don't feel the other. And then you start pointing out, well, actually, your incomes went up quite sharply. You're, you're all in work, you're all earning good money, you've got help, et cetera, et cetera. And this disconnect is what's probably Joe Biden's biggest worry and problem, because as long as the vibe session continues and people don't have a good vibe about the economy, then they're likely to think it's all his fault. 
But the reality is, and you know, this is not a political statement one way or t'other, the reality is this economy is doing in the US much better than expected. It is robust growth. And Jake, on that point, you're starting to see a slight increase in consumer sentiment. So people are starting to feel better about it. If you look at things like the Michigan uh, statement, you can see that it is going up. Can it go up fast enough? One point to note, Jake, the Republicans in New Hampshire and indeed Republicans elsewhere, it doesn't matter what the economy is doing. They will tell you, of course, that they don't feel as well and that it is the president's fault uh, as a result of, of, his, uh, of, his, of his inflation. Vibes session. New word. I did not know that word before today. I appreciate it, Richard Quest. I always learn something. Thank you so Thank much. You. Coming up, the mystery outside a Kansas City home. Three men all in their 30s found dead. Police suspect no foul play. So how did these three men die? What family members are saying and what has police so puzzled? Internationally, the mysterious deaths of three Kansas City Chiefs fans continue to puzzle investigators and torment their families. The men were last known to have gone to a friend's house around the time uh, of the game. They were found dead two days later outside the house. Police are waiting for toxicology results and have not said how the three men died, but they do say so far no foul play was observed or suspected. CNN's Whitney Wilde has more now on this evolving tragic mystery. More than two weeks after 38-year-old Ricky Johnson, 37-year-old David Harrington, and 36-year-old Clayton McGinney were found dead in the back of a Kansas City home, there are few details and frustration is growing. Adriana Juarez, who shares a child with Ricky Johnson, says she feels too many questions remain about how long it took to find the three friends. How do you not know there's three dead bodies? According to CNN affiliate KMBC, the three men visited a friend's home, a rented house in northwest Kansas City, after the Kansas City Chiefs beat the Los Angeles Chargers January 7th. Two days later, a worried fiancé who hadn't heard from her loved one looked for him at the home. According to police, when there was no answer at the door, she broke into the basement of the residence and found a dead body on the back porch. When police arrived, they discovered two more bodies in the backyard. CNN is not naming the friend because he hasn't been accused of a crime or charged in the deaths. His attorney, John Paserno. In the early morning hours, Jordan, around 2 a.m., he believes, uh, he got sleepy. He said, I'm going to crash on the couch. Uh, and he said goodbye to his buddies, and he thought that they left out the front door. Kansas City police are waiting on autopsies and toxicology reports to determine how the men died. At this point, police consider this a death investigation, not homicide, noting it is still the case that no foul play was observed or suspected. Johnson's niece, Stephanie Walling, said they want answers and some sense of closure. I never thought it would get as much attention as it has. I mean, I'm hoping that with the attention that it is getting, that it will get us closer to getting answers. Jake, it can take a month or more to get toxicology and autopsy reports back. Every moment there isn't an answer is just gut-wrenching for these families, Jake. All right, Whitney Wilde, thank you so much. This just in, a source tells CNN that Donald Trump is expected back in court tomorrow for the defamation case against him brought on by E. Jean Carroll. He was there today, briefly was on the witness stand. Why the judge cut him off during one of his responses. That's next. Plus, the prison sentence today for a former top Trump advisor who defied a subpoena from Congress. How much time did he get? Stay with us. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. 
So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, another journalist jailed in Russia. This one holds a dual U.S.-Russian citizenship. She's coming up on 100 days behind bars. Why hasn't the Biden administration declared her wrongfully detained? Her husband will be here live. Plus, allegations of bribery and blackmail igniting Republican politics in Arizona. The leaked audio leading to the state's top Republican chairman to resign. The Republican Senate candidate in the scandal, Carrie Lake, has a track record herself of pushing election lies, and now she's allegedly threatening to release more recordings. But leading this hour, Donald Trump back on the witness stand, this time briefly in the E. Jean Carroll civil defamation case. Last year, as you might recall, a jury found that Trump sexually abused the former magazine columnist in a New York department store in the 1990s. Then he defamed her when he denied the claim and aggressively attacked her credibility and character. This part of the trial is to determine how much Trump will pay her in damages. Let's start this hour with CNN chief legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed, who's been watching this trial in New York. And Paula, Trump was on the stand for just a few minutes testifying in his own defense. What did he have to say? Well, his lawyer, Alina Hava, and the judge spent more time debating what Trump could say on the stand than Trump actually spent on the stand. Because remember, this trial is about damages. Trump's utility as a witness is very limited, and the judge wanted him to stick to the script that he and Haba agreed to, and for the most part, they did. Let's go through the three questions that Haba asked him while he was on the stand. First, she asked Trump, do you stand by your testimony in the deposition? So the deposition that he gave in this case. He replied, 100% yes. Then she asked, did you deny the allegation because Ms. Carroll made an accusation? Trump responded, that's exactly right. Yes, I did. She said something that I considered a false accusation, totally false. But then Judge Kaplan cut in. He wanted them to stick to the plan. He cut Trump off saying that everything that he said after yes, I did is stricken. Because remember, they're not litigating here what is true and what is false in terms of what happened in that department store. That was litigated last summer. So here, Haba's final question was, did you ever instruct anyone to hurt Ms. Carroll in your statements? Trump said, no, I just wanted to defend myself, my family, and frankly, the presidency. Then... Trump stepped off the, he, actually he was, then he was cross-examined. But what's interesting here is there have been days and days of will he or won't he, Jake? And he did, but he only answered questions for three minutes. What happened when uh, E. Jean Carroll's lawyers cross-examined Donald Trump? She just asked really one question, and that was, is this the first trial with Carroll that you have attended? He replied, yes. Now that is, of course, a reference to the fact that last spring, the issue of what happened in that department store, aging Carroll's accusation of rape in that department store in the 1990s was litigated, along with questions about defamation and damages before jury. Trump didn't attend a single minute 
of that case. So that's what E. Jean Carroll's lawyer is getting at, that he never attended the trial where a lot of these key issues in this case where a jury found him liable for sexual abuse, were litigated. But now, of course, in the heat of the 2024 campaign season, he's attended much of this case and then opting to take the stand when he really doesn't have much to offer in terms of damages. I remember from his deposition, uh, he was asked if it's true uh, that if you're a star, uh, women let you get away with grabbing women by the genitals, et cetera, as he said in that infamous Access Hollywood tape. And he said he basically said, yes, Fortunately or unfortunately, fortunately, as if fortunately, uh, wow, wild. I don't think that deposition was very good for him. Uh, Paula Reed, thank you so much. Meanwhile, prison time for another former Trump advisor who defied a congressional subpoena. First it was Steve Bannon, now today, Peter Navarro, who was sentenced to four months in prison for defying the subpoena from the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Joining us now, CNN senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Polance and former federal prosecutor and CNN legal analyst Jennifer Rogers. Caitlin, to you first, what did the judge say when he handed down this four-month sentence for Peter Navarro? Jake, frankly, he said, you should have known better, Peter Navarro. Uh, Peter Navarro received this sentence of four months in jail, as well as a fine of $9,500. So a little bit less of a fine than Steve Bannon got for doing the same thing, but the same amount of jail time for defying the subpoena, not turning over documents, not sitting for testimony before the House Select Committee. And Judge Amit Mehta over at the federal court in D.C., he said, you know, Peter Navarro, you were happy to talk about what you were doing after the 2020 election publicly. You were writing about it in your book. And though you're a good guy and he brought his lawyer shoes when he needed him and he was uh, helping with the coronavirus pandemic in the White House, he should have known and he shouldn't have been saying this was a political prosecution, even to the judge today in court. Judge Mehta says specifically to Peter Navarro as he's handing down that sentence, you want me to believe this is a political prosecution when the evidence is completely to the contrary. You are not a victim. You are not the object of a political prosecution. These are the circumstances of your own making. So the judge making quite clear there, Jake, today, the consequences of not responding to a House subpoena in any meaningful way, even if you're a White House advisor, is jail time. Caitlin, uh, Peter Navarro usually comments on things publicly. How did he or his attorney respond to the four-month sentencing? Jake, he was drowned out by uh, naysayers of his outside the courthouse today, so he had a hard time personally responding, but his lawyers appealed very quickly after this. Currently, Peter Navarro is released. He's not in jail, and they are wanting to appeal on a lot of questions around executive privilege. If he has some sort of protection because he was serving in the Trump White House, uh, not on on election-related issues, but on other issues. If he has some sort of protection of the presidency around him, how that had to have been evoked by someone like Donald Trump when he was president. And his lawyers are asking the judge to not send him to jail right away, let those appeals play out, see where they go, and then see if he will have to report to jail for that four-month sentence. And Jennifer, prosecutors uh, wanted a harsher sentence. They wanted Navarro to be sentenced to six months for each of the two counts he was convicted for and to be fined 200 grand. So were you surprised he was given four months instead of a year and fined just shy of $10,000? I wasn't, Jake. You know, uh, judges hate to be reversed. So what they often do is give the prosecutors a little bit less than what they're asking for. It looks reasonable. It's within the sentencing guidelines range. And the fine in particular, you know, unless it's some sort of corporate crime or there's some sort of reason that 
uh, a monetary fine makes a lot of sense as part of the punishment. Most felonies and most misdemeanors in federal court uh, actually get the, the bare minimum fine, which is really called a special assessment. They don't get any true fine at all. So I wasn't surprised to see where the sentence ended up. And I, I think that the prosecutors are probably pleased with four months. I mean, it's not a lot of time, but it is a misdemeanor. And Peter Navarro, assuming that he doesn't get this overturned or uh, drag it out until former President Trump is president again and gets a pardon, he will go to prison for this. And that's, I think, at the end of the day, what prosecutors are looking for. So, yeah, let, let's talk about that, because you, you do think that ultimately, because they, they won't be able to be part, even if Trump wins in November, that won't he won't take office till January. So in the next year, you think it's likely that Navarro and or Bannon will actually go to prison? Well, so Bannon received um, a stay of the prison sentence while his appeal is pending. Navarro is trying for the same, which means that they won't go to prison until the appeal is fully adjudicated. If the appeal gets through the process and is affirmed, then they will have to go to prison. There won't be any delay. So the timing of that will kind of dictate whether or not there's time before the, uh, if the former president wins again for him to take office in January. But at least for Navarro, it seems pretty likely if he does get a stay that his appeal will go on beyond January. So he could get out of it altogether if former President Trump wins again. All right, Jennifer Rogers and Caitlin Polans, thanks to both of you. Coming up next, a new controversy in a 2024 battleground state involving Arizona Republican Senate candidate Kerry Lake. Hear the audio recording that led the state's Republican Party chairman to resign. In our 2024 lead, it's the Godfather, Arizona Politics Edition. Arizona Republican Party Chairman Jeff DeWitt has resigned after seeming to make Senate hopeful Carrie Lake an offer that she, it turns out, could refuse. The Daily Mail published an audio recording of a conversation where DeWitt seems to tell Carrie Lake there might be financial benefits for her staying out of the high-stakes race for the seat of independent Senator Kirsten Sinema. This is back east. They, there are very powerful people that want to keep you out. I know oh, they do. But they're willing to put their money where their mouth is in a big way. So what, what, what's going on? Who is it? What? Forget the who. Hmm. Cryptic. Lake already is endorsed by former President Donald Trump in this race, and she still falsely insists she won the Arizona's governor's race in 2022. DeWitt, who was also a former Trump campaign official, then appeared to ask Lake about money specifically. I can be bought. <laughs> That's what it's about. You can take a pause for a couple of years. No. And then go right back to what you're doing. No. 10 million, 20 million, 30, no, no, no. A billion, no. This is not about money. This is about our country. After these recordings were, were released, Lake called on DeWitt to resign as Arizona Republican Party chairman, and he did. But he unleashed quite a few major accusation bombshells along the way, writing in his resignation letter, quote, This morning I was determined to fight for my position. However, a few hours ago I received an ultimatum from Kerry Lake's team. Resign today or face the release of a new, more damaging recording. I am truly unsure of its contents, but considering our numerous past open conversations as friends... I have decided not to take the risk, unquote. Lake's senior advisors say no one threatened or blackmailed DeWitt and that the tape speaks for itself. But DeWitt says the recorded conversation was selectively edited and not a bribe, just an attempt to offer perspective between friends.
DeWitt also claimed Blake is the real puppet master here, saying she orchestrated this entire situation to have control over the state party. And he says she sat on the recording for 10 months before intending to use it, quote, to portray herself as a hero in her own story, unquote. Let's bring in our political panel to discuss this and so much more. Gloria. All that may be true, right? Well. She sat on it, et cetera. But what's on the tape is on the tape. It's on the tape. Do right. you think that DeWitt will ultimately ever reveal the very powerful people that wanted to keep Carrie Lake out of the race? Oh, who knows? Who knows? Maybe, maybe Carrie Lake actually knows who that is, and maybe she will reveal it. But, you know, this doesn't help the state parties party at all. And you've had these problems in Michigan and in Florida. Now in Arizona, these Republican parties seem to be falling apart at the seams. And this is just another example of that. And that doesn't help with raising money, does it? Yeah. Well, it certainly helps with the Trump campaign and their effort to maintain control over the narrative in some of the key states. Let's not forget, Arizona was the first one called for um, President Biden. It led to a whole series of officials getting fired from uh, Fox News under pressure uh, from Donald Trump because he and it's still the place where you have somebody running for Senate who believes the big lie and is a denier of the election. So the tape does sound like a, um, a selection of audio from Carrie Lake that is all for dear leader and you know, she is portraying herself and dear leader, President Trump, as the, the real people for the American public. I, I think this is bigger than the state party in an election in Arizona. I think this is honestly Carrie Lake trying to get her name back in the mix to be VP. Because oh, I, to be VP. Interesting. Right. Yeah. I don't think this is a play for votes in Arizona. Mm-hmm. I think this is a vote, you know, a play for I'm holier than thou. Uh-huh. And somebody can offer me a billion dollars and I'm not going to turn it down because I'm going to run for the sake of the country, and it's that well, important. She was taping it, right? And she, she said, was taping this it. This is for the country. Right. Yeah, so and she, she not even a billion dollars. So. Not even a billion, right. <laughs> yes. She's the heroine. But, yeah. but it's, it's for the country and for Trump. Right. That, well, that that's, that's oh, 100%. Oh, that's that's how she no question. It. And Jeff DeWitt is one of the nicest men that I think I've worked with in Trump world. Yeah. And it's, I, I think it, it's, it's unfortunate, honestly, that this came out the way it did, and it was selectively edited. I have to assume that. And even more so, like he said, she knew she was recording it, so her answers were going to be right. the way Righteous. that it was. Right. According exactly. to the screenplay that she was Very writing right. in her own head. Um, <laughs> there is reporting today uh, in the dispatch uh, by uh, David Drucker about a two-page draft resolution that's being reviewed by the Republican National Committee right now that would declare President Trump the apparent nominee of the Republican Party. Um, the, as I said, it was first reported by the dispatch. A draft copy of the resolution was obtained independently by CNN. So only two states have voted. Um, I mean, it seems likely that Donald Trump will, will be the nominee. But Nikki Haley, uh, last I checked, is, you know, successful conservative governor from South Carolina, has every right to run. It's, again, it's only been two states. Right. Uh, what's your reaction to this move? It hasn't happened yet, but there is a right. move inter- inside the RNC to just, like, say it's over. Well, first off, I think there's a certain irony in this and the fact that you have a process to decide who the nominee is for the Republican Party and you want to circumvent that process. And yet at the same time, you're talking about election interference and all these trials and everything else. Right. So that aside, the practical purposes of this are, are nothing. Right. It still says the resolution still says he still has to attain the certain the, the required number of delegates in order to be the nominee. Right. So what it is, is I think it's a, a movement to say, you know what, let's just stop all this theater. Nikki's going to lose. Let's get her out of the race and let's just move forward. But in practical purposes, it doesn't do anything well, for the RNC. Ronald McDaniel has already declared him the presumptive nominee number one. This is proposed 
apparently by David Bossie, who is very, very close to Donald Trump. Oh, sure. And Yeah. And so, you know, this is a way of just sort of kicking her out and saying, you know, we're not going to pay any attention to you. And done by, you know, Trump's buddies, because that's exactly what he wants. And Naira, Naira, in keeping with uh, this, this theme, um, Donald Trump on uh, his social media site, Truth Social, wrote, quote, Nikki Birdbrain Haley, that's his clever nickname for her, is uh, very bad for the Republican Party and indeed our country. Anybody that makes a contribution to Birdbrain from this moment forth will be permanently barred from the MAGA camp. Haley retweeted that and said, well, in that case, donate here with a link. Let's go. But again, um, it's, it's been two contests. Well, and the next contests, right, are the ones where she was a governor of that state. Right. And really, you're seeing a Republican Party that is trying so hard to keep this in favor of Trump and have this be like the last gasp of some effort for people like Haley or other candidates to work the process that the Republican Party set up. And it's it, it goes in the face of what we know party politics to be, which people think are corrupt anyway right. and don't like how parties are controlled by those higher up and the elites. But that it's still a process to go through. And for Trump and his cronies to come in and say, forget all that, just declare me the winner. It's more along the lines of the authoritarian mindset. And he takes he takes what she says personally. She worked for him. Yeah, it's a little mobby. I, well, yes, I mean, it, it is, but at the same time, the, the primaries and, and, uh, still have to go on. Yeah. Right? So even if you pass this resolution, they still have to go on. And South Carolina isn't next. It's Nevada where he's going to just... It's not a real contest, yeah. though. Right. I mean, the caucus it, it there, is. it's wild. And then Super Tuesday is... Right. It is going to be what it is. What right? happens when you get excommunicated from MAGA? That's what I want to know. Do you oh, have I, a card that they rip up and say, okay, you no, can't donate if you, I mean, like, if, if he we're, wins we're again... We're not going to take your money? Well, the RNC won't hire you, and if he wins again, you don't get to join the administration. I mean, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of reasons. Well, the, the, that right. would happen anyway, Well, the, the never-Trumpers right. learned that the first time around, and this is a reminder to everybody else who may be on the fence that this is what will continue <laughs> well, to happen. I mean, the never-Trumpers didn't. There were some that still got hired in the last administration and still work their way through i i don't think guarantee it's going to happen you, this no, time, the trump campaign yeah. is not going to turn away money there's no question i mean this is just a statement to be made that we're watching and you better be careful if you donate to somebody else I mean, yeah. well, so and for her part to say yes continue to donate i mean the, her only path forward or really anyone's path forward in this republican party is to try to be a contrast to trump yep thanks to one and all appreciate it coming up the democratic senate primary race in New Jersey, we were just talking about machine politics. In New Jersey, one candidate faces federal charges. Another just happens to be married to the state's popular governor. And a third you might recognize from a photo on January 6th. And that third one is going to join us next. Continuing with our politics lead, while President Biden describes the 2024 presidential choice in its stark terms, democracy versus autocracy. The Democratic Senate primary in New Jersey is shaping up to be the following. There's incumbent Senator Bob Menendez, who's currently facing trial for corruption, challenged by Tammy Murphy. That's the first lady of New Jersey, the wife of New Jersey Governor uh, Phil Murphy. She's a former Goldman Sachs analyst who has never been elected to public office before, and around whom the Democratic machine in New Jersey is rallying, versus three-term Congressman Andy Kim, he's the son of Korean immigrants, a Rhodes Scholar, a diplomat, and a member of Obama's National Security Council, whose district includes counties that Trump carried twice. Now, you might remember Congressman Kim from this viral photo of him cleaning the floors of the Capitol 
after the January 6th insurrection. To Congressman Kim and his supporters, the Democratic Party's commitment to democracy in New Jersey, at least, looks a bit shaky, unless you think machine politics exemplified the best of democracy. The questions that Kim supporters ask, what is it about the First Lady of New Jersey that prompted a bunch of Democratic county chairs from the most populous counties in the state to support her? Surely it couldn't have anything to do with fears of reprisals from the governor or his government, right? I think it's all because of Governor Murphy. The party bosses, I think, would like to stay on his good side. Um, we've also heard, though, that um, you know she's really been out there. She's made a lot of contacts herself. Um, Tammy and, and Phil Murphy are kind of a package. Another factor at play here, preferential ballots in almost every county in New Jersey, where endorsements are a key part of a candidate's placement on the ballot. The ballot is the whole ballgame in New Jersey, where Tammy Murphy has gained the support of county chairs in each of those counties. She will be on the line under President Biden. If they want to vote Democratic, they just check the box right down the line. If they're voting for Biden, they're more than likely going to vote for Tammy Murphy. So Congressman Kim just locked in his first U.S. Senate endorsement, Senator John Fetterman from Pennsylvania across the river. He's also raising issues about New Jersey's cockamamie preferential ballot placement. I really don't understand how anyone is, a, is okay with that ballot. I, I really don't know why you can weaponize the, uh, the ballot. That's really not true democracy there. Now, Fetterman says the last time he had to deal with a Republican from New Jersey, it was during his own campaign against Dr. Mehmet Oz. He's referring to the First Lady having been a Republican in toll around the time that her husband announced his intention to run for governor. Now charges of bullying are also heating up in the race. Shortly before the College Democrats of New Jersey endorsed Congressman Kim, a staffer with the New Jersey State Democratic Party reached out and told these college kids that their future job prospects and their ability to attend the Democratic National Convention could be in jeopardy because they picked Congressman Kim. The party staffer later told the New York Times that they didn't mean to threaten the students, and Murphy's campaign later distanced itself from the threat, saying that the staffer did not work on their behalf. The Murphy campaign tells CNN, quote, Tammy is laser-focused on listening to New Jersey voters and traveling the state to earn their support. Long before running for office, Tammy has worked to strengthen the Democratic Party in New Jersey to advance issues critical to working families, unquote. Congressman Andy Kim uh, joins us now. Congressman, it's good to see you. So uh, yesterday you got the endorsement from your former Democratic colleague, Congressman Tom Milanowski, uh, and the First Lady criticized him, uh, noting that he had been investigated and fined by the House Ethics Committee for improper stock disclosures during his time in the House. Um, and I'm wondering what your reaction to that was. Yeah, thanks, Jake. Um, thanks for shining a light on this. And, and you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, the First Lady uh, attacked former Congressman Tom Malinowski yesterday when he endorsed me. You saw and, and talked about what happened to the college Democrats of New Jersey, threatened and pressured when they were considering endorsing me. I mean, it's a pattern now. And it's a pattern of pressure and intimidation from the First Lady, from the state Democratic Party against, you know, what I keep telling them, you don't have to threaten and pressure every single person that endorses me. That's not what it needs to be. But the problem is that it's not just about those people. You know, they're, they're trying to send a signal to anyone who might be considering endorsing me 
uh, and trying to tell them not to uh, brush them off by showing, you know, the example what they make to those. And I just find that to be kind of the politics that people can't stand here in New Jersey and frankly around the country, especially on the heels of this scandal with Menendez. People in New Jersey are tired of this kind of soprano state uh, tactics. And, you know, honestly, it kind of resembles a lot of what President Trump's been doing in terms of telling donors not to, uh, to donate to Nikki Haley. That kind of pressure, that kind of uh, tactic is just got to move beyond that and just end it now. When those uh, party chairman, Democratic Party chairman, endorsed her, Tammy Murphy, um, and again, we should point out, she's never run for anything before. Um, what was your reaction? What was your response? Uh, Tammy Murphy's campaign says she's earned their endorsement. What, what do you make of it? Well, first of all, I, th I thought about how, you know, a number of those county chairs never even returned my phone calls, never gave me a real shot at being able to earn the support. And I believe in a democracy of fairness. I, do, I believe in a democracy where everybody has the right to participate, not just those who are well off or well connected. You know, I get it. I'm, I'm not central casting for what a senator from New Jersey would look like. I'm a public school kid. I'm a son of immigrants. But I'm a three-term member of Congress. I worked to flip a district that Trump won twice, a district that Democratic leaders in the state told me was impossible to win. I've been a, a diplomat in my career. I've served this nation every minute of my life. I deserve a fair shot. And that's not what I'm getting right now. And that's something that I think, you know, certainly I'm frustrated with. But I'm glad to see that literally uh, everybody else in Jersey politics seems to be frustrated with as well which is why while she's got the, the top level endorsement from party leaders, I'm leading the polls over her by 23 points. So I think it shows that the people want something different and I hope to be able to bring that about. Do you think that the continued machine party politics of New Jersey is a contradiction to how President Biden is casting the choice in this election, uh, democracy versus autocracy? Do you think um, that the Democratic Party of New Jersey in, in how it's conducting itself, going along with, okay, let's back the, the wife of the governor, um, is, is, is undermining Biden's message. Absolutely. I mean, I was with the president when he gave his speech about January 6th, talking about how we need to protect our democracy, saying, you know, we know who Donald Trump is, but who are we? And I think about that in terms of who are we as the Democratic Party? We are better than what we see in New Jersey right now. And, uh, you know, to be able to say that we're trying to protect our democracy when we see our own party and party leaders putting their thumb on the scale and trying to manipulate a ballot for the favor of, of, of someone, again, who's, who's well off and well connected, that's not the Democratic Party. And that's something that I'm standing up against. And, uh, you know, I'm putting my whole career on the line here. You know, I'm not able to run for re-election in the House. I'm putting my entire effort on the line here because it means that much to me. I want to be able to protect this. You know, I'm someone who ran and won in a district Trump won, but voted to impeach him twice. I'm willing to stand up against him, but I'm also willing to stand up against people in my party when, I'm think, when I think that they're doing something wrong. And that is what's happening right here in New Jersey. The Democratic Party needs to change and needs to be able to get on the program in terms of protecting our democracy and showing that we're not hypocrites, we're not inconsistent about making sure that we stand true to our values of this democracy. So you know I'm from right across, uh, right across the bridge in Philadelphia and I'm well acquainted with machine party politics and the Democratic Party and people names like Vince Fumo and, and uh, Buddy Cianfrani and, and a whole bunch of crooks uh, that the party would just foist upon 
uh, citizens year after year. Democratic Congressman uh, Andy Kim of New Jersey, thanks so much for your time today. Coming up next, another journalist detained in Russia. She holds a dual U.S.-Russian citizenship. Why her case is so different compared to other Americans jailed overseas. Her husband joins me next. Back with our world lead right now, dual U.S.-Russian citizen Alsu Kramasheva is entering her 100th day in a Russian prison. She's a Prague-based journalist who works for the U.S.-funded outlet Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty. Her employer says she reports on language, ethnicity, and minority rights focused on the Tartar population in Russia. Kramasheva was arrested in October after traveling to Russia in May 2023 to visit her sick mother, but Russian authorities did not allow her to leave. They say she did not register as a foreign agent and she was fined for failing to notify Russia she was a dual citizen. Her lawyer and her employer say she is innocent and despite multiple attempts, U.S. Embassy personnel in Russia still have not been allowed to visit her. Alsu's husband, Pavel uh, Butorin, is also a journalist at Radio Free Europe and he joins us now uh, live. Um, Pavel, thanks for joining us. When's the last time you had any contact with your wife? How is she doing? Well, Jake, 100 days in detention in Russia is 100 days too many for also for 100 days now also has been denied phone calls with the family, with the children. Uh, for 100 days as an American citizen, she has been denied visits from the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Uh, she is able to send letters. Those letters go through censorship. We know some things about her conditions. It's quite cold in Russia now. She's held in a, in a pretrial detention center in Kazan. Um, um, you know, she sometimes says that she's fine, but there's nothing fine about her detention in Russia. Uh, more than three decades after the collapse of the Soviet Union, Alsu is now in jail over a book that she didn't even write, but co-edited. Uh, again, in a country whose constitution prohibits censorship, there's nothing fine about her detention. We want her back. She's the, the mother of, you, you referenced your kids. You, you have two girls, 12 and 15. How are they coping? This is an incredibly difficult time for a family. Um, they, um, they have been without their mother for eight months now, of which three months she's in jail. Um, we're lucky to have very supportive friends. Uh, their school has been great. Uh, we also have the support of Radio Free or Radio Liberty. Um, it's a difficult time, but you know, we're, we're a very happy family. You know, the only thing that's missing is uh, you know, the person uh, that we... Uh, care most about, and that is also, but you know, um, music, uh, sports help us uh, cope with the situation. The girls, you know, play guitar, <laughs> sing Taylor Swift songs, and, and we're all runners. So, and by the way, also, once also, uh, at least once I know that she went for a run in that small prison courtyard. Um, yeah, it's a difficult time, but we have the support of our friends. So, unlike two other Americans, Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich and former U.S. Marine Paul Whelan, both of whom are also in Russian prisons. Um, the State Department has not yet designated Alsu as, quote, wrongfully detained, unquote, which is a, an important status. When asked about this on Wednesday, a, a State Department spokesman would not say if there was any progress in giving her that important formal designation. Do you have any idea why? I honestly don't know. I honestly don't know why they still haven't designated her as wrongfully detained. There's no, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that also is detained wrongfully. She is in jail because she is an American citizen. 
she's in prison for political reasons. Um, the uh, charges that the Russian government has brought against her have escalated only and become worse and worse. Um, um, she must be designated uh, uh, as a wrongfully detained American, and I uh, hope that happens soon. And uh, the United States government must commit to her a speedy and safe release from Russian captivity. So we mentioned that she's a mom, Al Su, um, and a dual citizen. She's also a daughter. Um, and the acting president and CEO of Radio, Radio Free Europe, uh, Radio Liberty, Jeffrey Gedman, wrote this about her case, quote, when last summer also traveled to Kazan from her hometown of Prague, she went to visit her elderly, frail mother on such a private trip. She thought she'd be safe. A mother in Russian culture is sacred. So also is a mother and she was visiting her mother, uh, apparently not so sacred to Putin. Um, did she share any fears uh, about her safety before she went on that trip? Well, this was a difficult decision, Jake. Uh, I know also as a caring mother, uh, a selfless friend, and a devoted daughter to her uh, frail mother. And, um, you know, she recently uh, shared a letter um, with us in which she says, she actually talks about that decision, and she says, you know, there's always tomorrow, but perhaps tomorrow the person that needs your help the most won't be around anymore. Um, so she prioritized being a, a devoted mother, a daughter, and made that difficult decision to travel to Russia. Uh, we, of course, understood the possible risks associated with any such trip. Um, we honestly did not expect uh, also to end up behind bars. Uh, she belongs with her family uh, here, with her daughters, uh, and not in a cold Russian prison cell. Uh, the Russian government must drop all of its charges against Al-Su and release her from prison and uh, allow her to leave Russia and rejoin her family so that she can hug her children again. Yeah. Pavel uh, Batorin, uh, thank you so much. Stay in touch with us so we can stay on top of the story. We appreciate your time and we're so sorry about what you and your family are going through. Thank you, Jake. A man with mental health issues is executed in Iran as that country continues its brutal crackdown on demonstrators. An activist taking part in a hunger strike in protest will join us next. We're back and sticking with our world lead. A hunger strike by dozens of female political prisoners held in Iran right now is underway uh, to protest the execution of a fellow political prisoner, Mohammed Hobadlo was hanged on Tuesday. He was charged with killing a police officer and injuring five others after running them over with a car during anti-government protests in 2022. Hobadlo's family says that he had a mental health condition. His lawyer says he was executed even before his final appeal had been decided. Joining us now is Iranian journalist and activist Masi Alinejad, who is participating in the hunger strike in solidarity with those being held in Iran. Masi, always good to see you. So according to Amnesty International, uh, Mohammed uh, Hobadlu is one of at least eight men to be put to death by Iran, uh, the government of Iran, over participation in protests over the death of Masa Jina Amini, the teenager who died under suspicious circumstances following her arrest in 2022 for not wearing her hijab correctly. How worried are you that these executions of people practicing civil disobedience, uh, protesting human rights conditions, and others. Uh, obviously, the circumstances here uh, with uh, Hobadlu is, is a little different, but still, that the executions will continue. Uh, to be honest, 
not only me, uh, millions of Iranians are worried that the rest of the political prisoners who are on the death row, they might be executed very soon. Because look, Mohammad Obadlu was innocent. Let me be very, very honest with you. They didn't even let him uh, to have his own lawyer. He didn't have any access to any independent lawyer. But the only lawyer that helped him, Raisian, uh, uh, he was actually inviting the judiciary system to have a debate with them because he believes that Muhammad was innocent. There was a, there was only shame trial. So we believe that the judiciary system in Iran became like a tool to take revenge of it, their own people, to create fear within the society. That's why we believe that as soon as we get closer to the election, they might execute uh, more people to show their loyalty to their own supporters. So the 61 female prisoners taking part in the hunger strike that you're joining uh, are being held in Iran's Avin prison, which is notorious for human rights abuses. Uh, what are you hearing from them, if anything? 61 female uh, protesters, prisoners, from Evin Prison, which is one of the notorious prisons, um, they actually started a campaign to go on hunger strike to show that they are united when it comes to save the lives of innocent protesters. But honestly, they're putting their life in danger. They're risking their life. Their family members joined them to send a message to the democratic countries to be united as well to ask the Islamic Republic um, to stop the executions and make them accountable. Because many of these political prisoners, like Nargis Mohammadi, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, Golrokh Irai, Sepide Golyan, they believe that if the West do not take action, they will kill more political prisoners. And Nargis, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, they added her sentence. Why? Because she's leading other women and asking other women to be loud because she's making a statement writing a letter to the United Nations to ask, uh, you know, the, the democratic countries to uh, to classify the Islamic Republic as a gender apartheid regime. So they are fighting within the prison, out uh, outside prison, miles away from there. Uh, I went on hunger strike to show my solidarity with my real heroes who yeah. are in prison right now. And meanwhile, Iran uh, continues to get bolder and bolder. There was the assassination attempt against you, mm -hmm. obviously. Uh, they're using their proxies, uh, Hamas and Hezbollah in Iraq and Syria, the Houthis in Yemen. And while this is all going on, CNN, yeah. CNN's reporting that the U.S. government uh, secretly warned Iran recently uh, that ISIS was planning a potential terrorist attack inside Iran. A, a notable warning from the U.S. since Iran is hardly a U.S. ally uh, and obviously Iran is... is supporting the uptick in attacks by these proxy militias on U.S. personnel and U.S. allies throughout the Middle East. But officials in the U.S. say it's part of the U.S.'s duty to warn policy, which applies even to adversaries like Iran. What do you make of that? It is shocking. It is shocking, Jake. If it's true and the U.S. actually warned the Islamic Republic about the attack by ISIS, then why? Why they didn't cancel the anniversary of the killing of Qasem Soleimani. Why? And millions of Iranians are asking why uh, the children of Qasem Soleimani were not present in that ceremony. Why the high-ranking uh, commanders and members of Revolutionary Guards were not there. So that actually shows you, if that's true, they don't care about the lives of ordinary people. They're actually using them 
like human shield to play a victim card. So I believe that killing, torturing is like in the DNA of the Islamic Republic. And that's why they're not only the threats to Iranian people, they were behind the coordinate war by Hamas on civilians on like uh, October 7, because they knew about the retaliation. They yeah. knew what the Israeli government going to do. So they bombed recently Pakistan. So they actually sending drones to Putin to kill innocent Ukrainians. That's why all the political prisoners risking their lives and asking the U.S. government, instead of negotiating with this murderous regime, you have to recognize the leaders, the civil society within the country saying no to Islamic yeah. Republic. Masi Alinejad, always good to see you. Thank you so much. We'll be right back. Finally, for us today in our out-of-this-world lead, the little helicopter that could and did can't anymore. NASA today announced the Ingenuity Mars helicopter has flown its last mission. As you can see from the jagged shadow in this photograph, at least one of its rotors is damaged, probably from striking the ground when the helicopter landed last week. This means that the helicopter cannot fly anymore. The little helicopter was designed to take five experimental test flights over 30 days after the Perseverance rover touched down on Mars in February 2021. It ended up flying 72 times over the course of nearly three years. NASA says it lasted 33 times longer than originally anticipated. If Martian helicopters can do that, why can't my car? You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Threads, X, formerly known as Twitter, and on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can follow the show on X at The Lead, CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in a place I like to call The Situation Room. I will see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.